as we think the tail end of August or the beginning of September, and finally we are going to make it to the end of chapter 5, and we have a guest speaker next week. His name's uh, Dr. Bill Thrasher. He's coming from Moody. Uh, he uh, spoke, I believe here, I think he fo- spoke at Fountainhead back in October of 2020. Uh, it was a while ago. So just thankful that he gets to come and be a part of our church. Uh, he and his, his emails uh, say, I get his weekly or monthly updates, and he said, I, I can't wait to go to Orlando and uh, be a part of the vibrant church that's there. And so he speaks highly of us, and we're thankful for him and what he does at, in Chicago. He was my professor there and just took, a, I remember the Book of Acts class with him in Revelation, Romans, and uh, I think it was spiritual formation, systematic theology. Any, anything that he taught, I was, I was uh, wanted to be a part of. He's just an amazing man of God, father, spiritual father, and just want you guys to get a taste of who he is. Uh, and so just welcome him next week. You're going to love it. It's going to be good. And yeah, so turn, turn with me to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, we come to a very familiar chapter, actually, with the demoniac last week and this week with uh, the two people. One, one is healed, miraculously healed, and then another is uh, a little child who's 12 years old gets raised from the dead. And so we're going to just go slowly through this passage because the, it really does unfold very well. Uh, there's suspense in this story. It's exciting, but really the reason why uh, I think this passage will be important to you, of course we're going to stick with Mark's concerns for all of us, which is he is the Son of God. Every chapter, every verse is pointing to Jesus being the Son of God. And so, of course, we see that again. We're going to see that him raising someone from the dead, also healing someone who had uh, 12 years of illness. But it's also... I believe this is important as well because we have a church that's growing and we need models. We need fathers. We need a model on how to minister to one another. Many of us are going through trials and tribulations and sometimes we even go through seasons. I believe that, you know, we go through seasons. Sometimes there's a little bit of a lull, you know, and things are okay. Things are good. And then some seasons it's it's just chaotic for a lot of us, uh, whether it's through illnesses or sickness, death or um, whatever it might be, trials and tribulations that God brings our way. And Jesus offers not only the fact that he, is, he proves that he is God through this chapter again and again and again, all the way through chapter 16 of Mark, but that he offers himself as a model and how to minister. And I think this will be really encourage, encouraging to you this morning. And when someone's going through something, we want to be a people who are available who are focused on the needs in front of us, uh, who are calm in the midst of chaos, and who are compassion, compassionate to those who are hurting. And so that, that is the outline this morning. Hopefully you can follow along as you're taking notes. It's really simple. It's four simple points. Um, I don't always do it that way. Uh, I, I, I don't want you to forget the fact that Jesus is, is constantly pointing to the fact that he is God and that he is worthy of your life. But there's also hundreds of implications of every passage. 
And in this passage in particular, we get to see how compassionate Jesus is towards those who are hopeless. And we have a lot of people, right, around us, whether it's in the workplace or school or whether it's in our, uh, even our own homes, uh, our family members, people around us that are hopeless because of life circumstances. And so we need to be engaged. We need to be available. We need to, we need to be calm. You know, sometimes when they're reacting chaotically, sometimes it, it's easy for us to do that. Uh, but we see that Jesus was not bothered by chaos or crowds or interruptions, but he was incredibly focused on the person in front of him. Uh, he was distracted, yes, as far as people dragging him to different places, but he cared about people. He was compassionate, so we have a lot to learn from him. Even as our church grows, I want us to be more like Christ in the way we minister to each other. We don't want to just be pragmatic and just tell people what to do, but we want to engage people like Jesus. And I'll show you that he is actually really practical as we go through this story, and you'll see that he is profoundly practical, even when everyone else is not looking at the, even the practical needs of his people. He, is always, he always has an eye on the spiritual, emotional, and the physical needs of his people. All right, so let's look at verse 21. When Jesus has crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. So he's, of course, they've had, you know, if you're walking with us through this, these last so many weeks, he's had quite a journey, hasn't he? Uh, they start off by, I mean, he's sharing parables, which one parable in particular, the, the parable of the sower, and we're going to look at verse 24 in chapter 4 towards the end. But just it, it sets, it, it, there's a context to all of this. And you've got to follow along. I think it would be even wise for you guys to even read the last chapter uh, before you come to see us on Sunday morning. Just so that you can kind of understand what's going on here. Because the work week is crazy and, and probably the last thing you're thinking about is what did we do last weekend, right? But I think it would be helpful for you to just stay engaged to see that there's a context here. And that he, you know, Jesus and his companions, they're teaching, they're getting into a boat. There's a crazy storm, and uh, he calms it, and then he sees this, if that wasn't crazy, he sees this demoniac has 6,000 demons in him. Uh, he's gashing himself, he's naked, he's shameful, uh, and then Jesus puts him in his right mind. He's fully clothed at the end of the chapter. People are freaking out, kick him out of the town. And then he continues to move on. So he crossed over again in the boat to the other side. And a large crowd gathered around him. He's always surrounded by people. And I, I think in ministry, we are. We're surrounded by people. We're surrounded by people all the time. We're always around people, aren't we? That is the business that we're in. We're in the people business in ministry. I tell that to the elders often. Please be present with people. It's important because we, we can't be, a lot of times maybe you've gone to conferences and they have a conference speaker up front and they're kind of whisking him away and getting him on his private jet, wherever. He never wants to talk to people. But Jesus was always available. He was available to the needs of his people and that was very clear in his ministry. And so there were people around him that didn't bother him. In fact, sometimes he was so jammed 
uh, and, and crammed against uh, with people, you know, slamming him all the time to the point where he, sometimes he had to get in a boat and kind of give himself some distance so that he could teach, which is the purpose why he came to preach the gospel, to save people, not just heal them temporarily. And so he saw a man, a synagogue official, and you'll see here it just continuously, continuously synagogue, synagogue, synagogue. The reason why that is important, try saying that three or four times in a row. It's not always the easiest, right? But it's important because there's, there's a contrast happening here. There's a man who has a daughter who is 12 years old, who is sick and dying. And in fact, uh, in Matthew, it says he, she has died. And then you also have a woman here that, they're gonna, that is going to interrupt the story that has a disease, a blood disease, and she's had that for 12 years. And so Mark's kind of using this as a, as a literary device, but I mean, it's true stories, and they happen. Uh, and the other uh, parallel accounts uh, in Matthew and Luke document these stories as well. But you could see that there's this contrast between this man who is wealthy, uh, honorable, a man, a, a man in leadership, in the highest levels of leadership in a synagogue, and the woman who is poor, rejected, uh, and shameful, as we'll see. And so the first one is the synagogue, and his name is Jairus, or Jairus, excuse me, came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. And like I said in Matthew 9.18, he records that she has died. Now, I think we can safe to say that she's dying and she's about to die. Or, and and she, he probably figured by the time we get there, she probably will be dead. But he says something interesting. He says, If you place your hands on her, she will get well and live. Now, how did this man even know about Jesus? I mean, this is profound faith here. I would imagine, you know, even some scholars say that perhaps he was the synagogue official that was a part of the, when Jesus, remember when Jesus was teaching early on in Mark, and the demon screeches mid-service and, and says, you're the holy one. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, of course, Jesus casts him out and sees the miracle. And so, uh, but also at the same time, this man, Jairus, was most likely uh, or surrounded by Pharisees who did not like Jesus. In fact, there was a growing hatred towards him. And so you have this interesting man here who, who both, in one sense, knows about Jesus, has seen probably miracles, heard testimonies of miracles, curious, also at the same time have to be somewhat careful because he's surrounded by other religious leaders who hate him, but at the same time finds himself in a very desperate, hopeless situation that any father could ever find himself in of his 12-year-old daughter on the brink of death or if not already dead. Now just let that sit if you're a dad of a daughter or anybody or even a son for that matter. I, one of the, they, they, they say, I have not, thankfully, by the grace of God, has not, have not lost a child. They say that is one of the most uh, 
painful things that any human being could ever go through is to witness the death of a child. So you can only imagine what's happening here, just the emotions. Don't miss that as you're reading the Bible. Don't put more emotions in there than, than needed, but don't just gloss over them and move on. Say, oh, I know how this ends, and let's move on uh, with the next story. Because the next story is going to be very similar <laughs> in that Jesus is healing or raising people from the dead or being kind to them, loving them, ministering to them. That, that's not old. That should never get old for a believer. So as you spend time in your, your quiet times and read the Bible and even maybe even are reading through Mark together as a life group, uh, I would encourage you to slow down. Look at the text. They're just like us. Jairus is just like us. He's a dad. And this is, he, he's, he's desperate, but other people are desperate in the Bible. And you'll see that. This Syrophoenician woman, remember her? Who has a, a daughter who's uh, in, uh, severely ill and demon-possessed. And she wants help. She's a Gentile. I mean, there are, there are desperate people, but, but she didn't believe. She, she was a Gentile. She, she didn't believe in Jesus. What's different about this man and what's so profound is he, even his posture, it says that he came up to him, seeing him, he fell at his feet. He worshiped Jesus. He had faith to believe that Jesus not only heals, but he can raise people from the dead. And there was no uh, resurrection as far as what we can understand in Galilee at that time. And so this was incredibly profound. There was no testimony as far as what we can understand of, you know, multiple testimonies of people being raised from the dead. And this man comes around and says, Jesus, if only if you could get to my daughter, whether she's dead or alive, you place your hands on her, she's coming back. She's going to live. She's going to get well and going to live. And when he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing on him, so constant pressing, being jammed by people. Verse 25 says, a woman, so it begins this transition now, and this interruption in a way, and you can only imagine what Jairus is probably thinking at this point. I mean, he doesn't want any interruptions. And you as a dad doesn't want any interruptions either. You're like, hey, look, we're going to do one thing, Jesus. We're going to get to my daughter. And that's it. I don't care what, what I have to do with it, to some of these guys who are going to hem in on you. Because I know they all want you. I know all they're bringing their grandmas and in-laws and all these people. But we got to get to my daughter. So a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had, was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Again, what profound faith. To even say, look, if I just touch the, the hem the tassel, and we'll get to that in a moment. If I could just touch the tassel, I know there's so much power coming from this man that even if I touch it, 
I know that I'll be healed of this horrific disease that has afflicted me for 12 years. Immediately, the, blood, the, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples, who were always incredibly wise, <laughs> says this, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see, he, he noticed he didn't even answer them. Like, I'm not even going to, it's beneath me, you know. <laughs> and he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has, been, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So the first point I want to make is that he's available. Jesus is available to his people. Let me ask you, as, as a life group leader, are you available to your people, or are you just delegating that to some elder? Are you available to the people in your household? Fathers, are you available to your kids? Mothers, are you available to your kids? Your husband? Husbands, are you available to your spouse? Because that's what it means to minister to people, is to be available, to be present. When someone yanks on you, in one sense, you pay attention to them, right? I mean, how many of us, you know, dads, you know, you know that constantly you have three or four kids talking to you at the same time. It's like, who do I, t- you know, what do I do? Oldest to youngest. <laughs> no, I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, are you constantly, I don't know about your household, but my house, so it's like, I got the four kids. I, I, I got my wife talking to me. I got a phone call coming in. I got the fish asking for my attention. I mean, I got everybody, you know, doorbells ringing. Text message coming in as I'm on the phone. It's like, how many people could I talk to? I'm not omniscient. I'm not all-knowing. <laughs> I'm not all-present. I'm not God. <laughs> but somehow, God can be present all at once. If we all just stop right now and we all prayed, he listened to every single one of you. That's the God we serve. And Jesus is available to his people. What an amazing truth. You ever wonder that? With all the needs in the world, there's so many needs in the world, and you're just praying this prayer that's really, I mean, no one's dying, and you're just praying, Lord, help, my, help me like, with, with this test. And God's saying, well, if you'd only study, I could just give you a little boost, but now nah, I really got to come in. You know, and, and you're wondering, is he going to answer me? I don't know. Is he going to help me? He's available. He's available to you. And we see that over and over and over that Jesus is available in times of crisis. Maybe you have a problem with your, you and your spouse, your, your, your button heads and, and you're rubbing, you know, and it's just, it's not working. 
And you're like, well, there's no way the Lord's going to help him. He's, you know, I, you hear this, right? He's just got so many needs. There's so many things. You know, even talk to people on the, on the streets. It's like, hey, do you need prayer? Oh, there's just so many needs. What, I mean, what could I, I, I don't need your, I don't need prayer. No, 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 he's available. I mean, just take, take me up on it. I'm, I'm here now. I won't be here tomorrow, you know. No, it's okay. You know, I mean, there's, there's lots of other people. I mean, you get that all the time, right? But he's available and he wants to minister to his people. We know that. It's clear. But not only that, we learn in verse 25 to 34 in this next section, but that he's focused on your needs. Individually. He's not just a, he's not a God who just kind of, it's not like, like a blanket statement. Yeah, I just care for all these needs, kind of in general. It's kind of a general thing. No, no, no. He's focused on You'll see on the needs of Jairus, but then also there's this interruption and he's focused now on the woman at the same time he has Jairus next to him. That's amazing. I mean, that's just how he works, right? I mean, he works like that all the time. I mean, even in your own household, it's like, well, my, my one child needs God and my wife needs God and definitely my other child needs God and this child needs God and I need God even more than anybody is he going to answer my prayer and everybody's prayer all at once? And he's going to minister to our whole, whole household, let alone the entire planet. I mean, he's, it says in Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8 and John 17, constantly over and over. And the Puritans write about them, the Reformers. And, and, and you know, you go, you, they just all the time, they talk about over and over and over the intercession of Christ. He's even ministering to you now, even without your prayers. That's amazing isn't it? Over and over again, they write about this because it is key for your health, emotionally, spiritually, to know that Jesus is continuing his work of redemption as an intercessor. And he doesn't miss a prayer meeting. We do. He doesn't. Thankfully, right? He doesn't sleep through an alarm, does he? He's always on. In fact, if that wasn't enough, then even knowing in, in, in Romans 8 that the Spirit even intercedes for you. You got a double team. I mean, there's a tag team happening. That's incredible. He's available. And he's focused on you. So if you've got an available God who's focused on you, what else do you need? I mean, that should produce so much faith, you don't even know what to do with that. Give it away to somebody. Tell somebody else about that profound, amazing truth. So what's going on with the woman? So she has hemorrhage for 12 years. Now, this is a big deal. I'll just break this down a little bit so that you understand a little bit more what's going on. She is definitely a social outcast. And the reason... Why? Is because she has constant bleeding. And if you, you turn with me to Leviticus 15, everybody's favorite book, and this will definitely be by far everyone's favorite passage. Leviticus 15, verses 25 and 29. This is church, by the way. We're not in the doctor's office at this point, but bear with me. If you don't like blood, close your ears. If a woman has discharge of her blood many days, and not at, the, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge she, has, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity. 
she is unclean. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. That's incredibly shameful. And that's embarrassing. And I'll tell you why the Old Testament does this in in a moment. But she shall wash her clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And when she becomes clean from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days. And then afterwards, she, she will be clean. You know, in her case, she can't do that, can she? Because seven days happen, seven days, seven days. That amounts to 12 years of this horrific affliction. Then on the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two pigeons or young pigeons and bring them to the priest to the doorway of her tent of meeting. You have to remember that this isn't something cruel that God, he doesn't want to shame his people. He, he, this, this is set up in the Old Testament as a way of a reminder, as a symbol of how unclean sin is, how shameful it is. How It's a constant reminder that when we sin, it, it just lingers. It, 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 it has an effect on us, doesn't it? And it's, it's serious. And so God is not trying to make these people's lives difficult per se. It's, it's showing us the, and it's not trying to just set up so we understand the New Testament better for some reason, some illustration. But it, he set up the law so that people can understand how the sinfulness of sin, but also that other cultures can look in and say, God takes sin very seriously. It really does affect people. Every sin has consequences, doesn't it? And so this is a a reminder, but unfortunately for her case, and and by the way, God provided a way to overcome that uh, uncleanliness through sacrifice. That was the means of grace then. We don't need that today. We have the cross of Christ is the means of your grace and my grace to be saved. But back then they had they were, everyone was saved by faith, but back then they had a, a certain means of grace through the sacrificial system, which was by faith, believing that, Jesus, or that God would wipe all their sins away through this means. And he did, provide provision, he did provide a way for your sins to be forgiven, thankfully. But this poor woman just could find no cure, no way out of her shame because it was constant. In fact, some say maybe she was not even married because of this. What guy would want to marry her? To continually be with a woman who's unclean. And also the New Testament says this, that if Jesus were to even touch her, he would be unclean. Anyone who would touch her And so this is pretty serious. As you can see, she's hopeless. If that wasn't enough, she couldn't find a cure and doctors couldn't help. It says she's frustrated. In fact, if you look back at the Jewish Talmud, it says here it listed 11 possible remedies. Many of them were superstitions to try to help 
with this infirmity or sickness. And some of them were absolutely horrendous, like placing the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cloth sack, carrying it around, carrying around a barley corn, corn kernel that came forth from a female donkey dung. Somehow this would help. Onions and wine. I, it just... And you might laugh, but the reality is there's, they, they, they didn't really have cures for diseases until something like the 19th century. So it just, this is the way people lived. Like I told you guys before, you know, even during the Reformation, there, there's, there's all these plagues and many people died. I mean, it wasn't, uh, if, if you had children that were still living, that was a miracle in itself because many children died. Uh, and so look at that, but this is frustrating. I mean, and, and look, you might even be going, or knowing someone that is going through a disease or even have a disease that there is no cure for. Maybe I know people that are even on experimental drugs, and they're just trying different things, and it's making them worse, and it's frustrating. You're spe- and then not only that, but it says they, she, she had spent all she had. That's even more frustrating. Tens of thousands of dollars sometimes is spent on trying to help somebody live. It's incredibly frustrating and hopeless. It says here in Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And she definitely not only was sick with a blood disease, but she was probably sick spiritually and sick emotionally. She was just devastated. And Jesus was her only hope. So she found him, touched the, the fringe of his cloak, which uh, in, in Luke 8.44 says, is that, says that, 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 that just the fringe of it. And just what that means is they had this cloak and uh, kind of on the ends of it, you could look it up on the internet, but they just had these tassels that would hang from the cloak. And uh, they would, I don't know if you've ever seen them before, but they would just, they would sort of dangle. And, and she's just, she just needed to just touch and even a small part of that by faith. There was no power in the tassel. There was no power in the cloak. There was no power in his clothes. There was not even a power like technically on skin. It was pure faith in what Christ could do. That's what faith is. It's not faith in some sort of superstition as you see even uh, the Roman Catholics have that, uh, you know, in their, uh, you know, if you go to the Vatican, they have these like back rooms where they, they have, um, you know, basically artifact, or, you know, body parts of you know, bones and, and you just touch them and somehow you, you may get healed or you, you have a special blessing. That's all superstition. That's not what we're talking about here. This woman had pure faith. She said, look, if I just could get near him, I know him enough to know that he will do something about my condition. It was faith. And these, interestingly, these tassels would be on the corners of your garment, it says in Deuteronomy 22. And then in Numbers 15, they would, uh, Moses says that they will, they will be, uh, Numbers, it's Numbers 15, verse 37, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they should make for themselves tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put on the tassel of each corner a blue, or a cord of blue, and it shall be a tassel for you to, to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So as a reminder, again, this is not some superstition. It's just 
These are facts to remind them uh, of the Lord and who he is. But then in Matthew 23, 5, the Pharisees lengthened their tassels in pride. And so you can see even Mark might be doing and just showing the, the silliness and how over here you got the, the Pharisees who prayed around and their religiosity and, 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 and show how religious they are and how powerful they are. And then, uh, and then you see the, the humility of Jesus. He would, there, there, Mark is not trying to, uh, if you ever find yourself overseas with a superstitious culture, or religion, uh, now you know. This isn't some superstitious. They may even bring that up, you know, uh, of some sort, of some sort of superstitious way. Uh, like I said, there's lots of sects of Christianity that, that have uh, these sort of superstitious ways. In fact, maybe you are superstitious. Maybe, you know, and I would check that, and, and maybe you kind of go through some sort of ritual where you get up in the morning, you spend time with God a certain way, and if you don't, then you think something bad's going to happen to you, and you can kind of get superstitious with your own Bible, your own quiet time. It's really important that you don't do that, that there's true faith in the power of the person of Christ and him alone. So immediately, what I love about this is, 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 a, is opposed to the charismatics, there's always like these levels of like, well, you know, you got, you know, level one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, level t- all the way to ten, you know, levels of, of healing. You know, I, you've gone from a two to a four, and from a four to a five, and, and then tomorrow morning you might go to a nine. This was immediately. This is immediately. The blood dried up immediately as soon as she touched the hem of his garment. But I thought it was interesting, too, is that it's important that Jesus is not just an impersonal force. You don't just need to kind of get near him and then, and then something miraculously happens. Jesus felt, which is important to his person, that he's both God and man, he felt power being released from him. In other words, this is important to your faith because he personally wants to minister to people. It's not just some generic uh, uh, impersonal power force that, that heals people, right? That every time Jesus ministers to people, it is person to person. And that's how we minister, right? You know, you see all the times it's like touch the, your television screen and you'll be healed. <laughs> or, 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 you know, it, it, the little holy waters that the, the guys bless and then they can send them to you for a um, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever. But he's, a, he's personally ministering to you. And that is incredibly important, that he is a person. It's not just some uh, impersonal force that's out there. But Jesus is personal. That is so important to our faith. When you tell people about Jesus, it's not some mystery, mysterious force, power thing that sort of happens to people. You know, as you talk to people on the streets and you minister to people. But that he's personally involved. And why do we know that? Because he asked. He asked, who touched me? What was he doing? 
You know, look, if he needed, if, if he was going to Jairus' house, and I would imagine Jairus would, did not appreciate the fact that he stopped and asked who touched him. But we're learning something about the nature of Christ here that is so pertinent to our faith because he stops. He could have just let it go. Okay, yeah, you know, the, he, just no contact. Okay, let's move on. She got healed. Great. But how many of you know that there are many people who get healed but never come to Christ. There are so many people. And that, you know what, and this is what I want you guys to be very careful of as you hear about these healing crusades. And, and, and we have the charlatan, you know, the big name charlatan in our own backyard. I won't name the name, but you know who it is. That whole group of people that come in from all over the world, those people don't know what in, what in the world who Jesus is. They don't know him. They're just about the impersonal force. They're just about this, this force that, that heals people, and then they stop there. And you hear them all the time. They're all like, oh, they're, they're contending. Oh, if we just could see more healings, if we could see more healings, we would believe. That's simply not true. I love about this is that Jesus called her out. Who touched me? He has more for this woman than just the blood drying up. And you know what? He has more for you than just answering your prayer to be healed or more for the person that you're praying for. Oh, I just pray that they would get healed. Pray that they get healed. Can we as a church, when we pray for people, the most important thing is yes, that's wonderful. We want them to be here. We don't want them to suffer. And we don't want no one to suffer. But we want no one to suffer for all of eternity. We want people to be saved, not just healed. And so he says, who touched my garments? And his disciples said, you see the crowd? I mean, how in the world? You're not going to find her. You're crazy in one sense, they're saying. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this and him being all-knowing. And sometimes as a, in his incarnation, he knew things. But we also can make an argument we see throughout the gospel. He did not know because it says in Philippians 2, it's very, I'm very careful with this, right? He's both God and man. But there are times where he just did not know, right? Where he said, I don't know when I'm going to be back. Only my father knows. There were certain things that he chose to not know so that he can be amongst us. But he knew someone touched and he knew the power came out and he wanted to do more for this woman. So this woman came out and she was fearful and trembling. And why was she fearful and trembling? It's not because of her blood disease. It's not because she touched the Son of God, but because the Son of God healed her. It's the same feeling, the fear and trembling that happened to Isaiah as he saw God. It's the same fear of God that happened when Peter could not find any fish, could not, you know, all night long, and Jesus comes and says, throw the net over here, and all of a sudden all these fish came, and he gets down on his knees and said, I'm unworthy. It's the same fear that the disciples found 
as they were in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. It's the same fear that when the demoniac got healed, he's sitting there in his right mind and they're saying, you got to get out of here. God's here. She's saying, look, I don't know any other man who can do this. This has to be God. This has to be God. This is God. And I love that how he talks to her in such a compassionate, loving way. And you even see that how he talks to Jairus too. Yes, of course I'll come with you. Of course I'll minister. Of course I'll be available to you. And of course I will be available to you. He wasn't just rushed. Oh, sweet. The power comes out. Hey, look, I'll do all the miracles. I'll take my jacket and wah! And all these people fly. And you know, he's, he's actually really caring about people. He cares about every individual. This is a true minister of God. He says, look, I don't even, I don't, I'm not interested in just the power kind of flowing out of my tassel. I want to know who this person is because I personally want to save her. And I love that this faith not only healed her, but this faith has saved her. And he calls her daughter. You know, it says here that John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Jesus made her well because of her faith. That word in the Greek is sozo. It's saved. It's salvation. It's talking about eternal salvation. She was dead and now she's alive. Yeah, sure, she was sick and now she's healed, but she will be healed for all of eternity. Even if that blood disease, for whatever reason, came back, which we don't have a record of that, and I believe that Jesus, once he dried up the, the blood disease, it most likely never came back. But you know, you know the story of Lazarus. He had to die again, unfortunately. But Luke seven fifty, it says that the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with tears, he said, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus does not flippantly use go in peace. In fact, you shouldn't either. When people say, oh, I need peace, I need peace. You better tell them the truth and how to get peace. Don't just tell them, hey, you know, come to church or, you know, although you can and, and they might hear the gospel and be saved, but tell them how they can really have peace with God. Because that's the peace he's talking about. He's talking about salvific faith. Salvific peace. The only way to get that is by trusting in Christ alone. It's not just some peace that comes and goes when something bad happens to you. It's like, now I'm not at peace like the disciples in the boat. I mean, we all are there. We all are anxious. And God's constantly telling us, don't be anxious. Paul tells us, don't be anxious. Peter tells us, don't be anxious. This is not just a, I'm anxious, now I have peace. And this is true peace with God because you're justified before a holy God and you are forgiven for your sins. And you no longer have to wonder, is he going to punish them again? Once, Jesus punishes, once God punishes Jesus on the cross, he doesn't punish you again. There's no double punishment. 
as some theologians talk about. It's once and for all, Hebrews says. And this woman got to experience a double blessing. She now felt, I, I would even imagine she would have taken salvation even more than the blood. She would have, she, she would have been okay with living with a blood disease to, to know that she has true peace with God. But God gave her a double blessing that afternoon. In Mark 10, 52, he said to the blind man, go, your faith has made you well. It's the same word. Luke 17, 19, the same thing with the healing of the lepers, if you remember. There's only one who came back, right? All those guys got healed. And Jesus healed people that had faith, healed people that did not have faith, right? But I'll tell you what, you cannot be saved without faith. It's what's called common grace. People get to experience all sorts of blessings on this earth. They go into a hospital, they have surgery, they come out successful. They, they have food on their table, they have a wonderful job, they get to go on vacations. They get all sorts of blessings. And you watch that with the unbeliever, right? The sunshine comes on the unbeliever and the believer. The rain comes down on the believer and the unbeliever. Blessings come down on the believer and the believer but the only the believer by faith has eternal life. And she had this kind of faith and it healed her of this affliction, which just that, that word affliction means mastics, it's scourged, the whip. It's, it can only, I mean, it's, it, the, Mark is bringing this out in a sense of saying this affliction was like a whip on her back for 12 years. And Jesus healed her of that completely. He truly does heal our afflictions. And the ultimate affliction he saves us from and delivers us from, which is hell itself, which is eternity with a whip. That's true, long-lasting affliction. The third point is that Jesus is is completely calm in crisis. I know for myself as a minister, I know that I'm not always calm. And you aren't either. In verse 35, while he was still speaking, we don't know how long he spoke. He could have spoke for, I don't know, taught, gave a, a, a you know some sort of, object lesson, you know, about salvation. And we don't really know, but he, while he was still speaking, and Jairus is probably over there wondering, this guy, I mean, I, are we going to get to my daughter or what's going on? I mean, I can imagine some level of anxiety. I mean, he has faith, but I would imagine he was getting a little anxious and lo and behold, his house came and says, your daughter has died. So don't trouble the teacher anymore. There's no use. Don't even come. You just continue on in your teaching. We got the funeral already happening here. Bodies decompose fast then. They just, we got to get moving here. And so don't even bother coming. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, 
said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And I love that, that he's comforting even in that moment because you know what, like us, we have belief, but at times it wanes because of circumstances. I mean, look, he started off right out the gate great. He's like, look, my daughter's dying or she might be even at this point dead. I want you to come and lay your hands on her. In other words, it's, it, it, don't look at the story saying she was alive and then she died. Or, or let's say it this way. She was alive and she, he had faith that Jesus could heal only if she's alive. And then all of a sudden got the news that she's dead and now he kind of gets discouraged. No, no, no. He believed that he could raise anyone from the dead. In other words, we have faith that he is the God of the resurrection, the God of the, the, the healing of diseases and one who can cast out demons, the one who can calm the storm. Why do we find ourselves with this high faith and all of a sudden when something hopeless happens in our life, we're like, it's not that we, if someone directly asks us, do you believe? Of course, we'd say we believe, yes, but there's something in us that sometimes can give in to hopelessness. And I love that Jesus comes alongside and he says, look, Continue in your faith. That's what biblical perseverance looks like. Biblical perseverance is an act of God. The perseverance of the saints, as theologians call it, is a profound doctrine in the church that should be embraced by every believer because it gives such comfort that when our faith fails at times, Christ comes in in his heavenly uh, priestly intercession. He's doing it even now. And in fact, that was almost like a prayer physically speaking, saying, Jairus, you believe. Continue in it. Continue in it. Do not give up now. I understand the news. And he backs up that statement by going to the house. Can you imagine how the hope all of a sudden went up again. He's coming. Jesus isn't going to a funeral. He's not just paying his respects. He's going to accomplish a job. And that probably gave so much hope to him, to Jairus and his family. In fact, even can make an argument to his disciples. Sin caused death. Death is awful. It should, in one sense, never really be embraced in a sense of it's normal. Well, that's the way life goes. Romans 3.23 and 6.23 says this, all, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as though one man sinned and entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And then death caused fear. Sin caused death. Death causes fear, doesn't it? Hebrews 2, 15, uh, Jesus came so that he might f- free us from the fear of death. Jo- uh, Job eighteen fourteen. he is torn from the security of his tent and they march him before the king of terrors. Death is the king of terrors. Terrifies every human being on the planet. Why do you think everybody's scared of COVID? Because they're afraid to die. Not because of a sore throat. 
Psalm 55, 4, my heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Jesus comes in 1 Corinthians 15 to take away the sting of death. Right. Listen to J.C. Ryle says, death comes to halls and palaces as well as to cottages, to landlords as well as to tenants, to the rich as well as to the poor. It stands on no ceremony. It tarries no man's leisure or convenience. It will not be kept out of, by locks or by bars. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Ryle completes this saying, All are going to one place, the grave. The grave. No one's escaping it because all have sinned. But thankfully, there's hope, isn't it? Isn't that why we come to hear the power over death in Christ? And I love that Jesus is a one of compassion and he's available and he's focused and he's calm. He's calm with the distractions. And, you know, we would be like, Wait, there's all these, we we'd feel like, oh, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed. He's consistently calm, he never moves in panic. Whenever you find yourself in a crisis, he does not panic. He's never the one freaking out. He's always the one at the bottom of the boat sleeping. He's perfectly fine. But we know he's not sleeping now. He's forever interceding. But it's a wonderful picture that he does not, he's not rushed. He's not panicked. He's completely sovereign and in control. Now, I love this. He says that, you know, do not be afraid any longer, but only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of Peter and James and John, the brother of James. These are the leaders. And he, you'll see this over and over again that he allows them to come in because they're the leaders who are going to tell of these testimonies. They're the ones who hear and obey. They're the ones who get greater revelation. They're in John 15, the friends. Jesus lets them in on what he's doing. And he lets us in on what he's doing. And they came into the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and the people loudly weeping and wailing. Now, most funerals that you go to probably don't look like that, do they? It's quiet, somber. In one sense, rightfully so. But then it, they hired professional mourners. Like, can you imagine being a professional mourner? Like, how do you practice that? Your kids are good at that. They probably should hire them. They come in and really make the place in a noisy disorder as Matthew 9 says. It was a noisy disorder. They hired professional mourners to come and wail and weep and be loud and, and emotional and dramatic. And they would also hire flute players. They would also hire them and they would come and they would, they would uh, play the, these, these, this music. It would be loud and it, it, you would definitely know. In fact, um, the, the people in Rome would, would observe this and, and they, would, they, would, they would say that, um, uh, I think it was Seneca that said one of the, the, the Caesars had, had died and there was such wailing and, and, and uh, a commotion that one of them said, hey, 
I'm sure he could probably hear that in the grave, you people are so loud. I mean, it just was, that was just what, how they did things. They don't do that now, but a lot of times they weren't really even, especially if you're a prominent person like Jairus was, they quickly hired these people and they weren't really mourning. They were just, you can only imagine as you hire somebody on to mourn for you. They're not, they don't really care about your dead daughter. So there was no real mourning happening. He says here, in entering in, he said, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Luke 8.52, he just says, simply stop weeping. Mark 9, or Matthew 9.24, he says, leave. Leave. And then it says they began even laughing at them, but we'll pause there for a second and just address this one thing. Anytime you see a sleep in your Bibles, this is really important for this passage because we're going to understand that she was in fact dead. And, and, and even people who come in uh, and, and look at the story, perhaps even uh, skeptics and say, oh, she's just asleep. I mean, look, the Bible says she was asleep, but it's a euphemism for being dead. In fact, John eleven eleven. To 15 says, Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if, the, if he just fell asleep, he will recover. There's no need. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you might believe. So we need to go to him. Asleep is a temporary death. Or, I'm sorry, it's, it's, asleep means you're dead, but you're, you're separated from your, your body. So when you die, your, your, your physical body will lay there and it will look like you're just sleeping because you're eventually going to get a new body in the new heavens and the new earth. But your spirit is separated from your body and either goes to one, one or two places, either in hell or in heaven. And Paul even said that, uh, and kind of alluded to that in Philippians 1.23, but I'm hard-pressed from, from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. So, and then you, you have the story in Luke 16, or the rich man and Lazarus, your conscience, your conscience when you are even dead, physically dead, but you're alive in one or two places. So in rich man and Lazarus, remember one went to hell and was like, can I just have a little drop of water? Just, just give me some level of relief. Can I just get out and even share the gospel, he says. And that was not possible. But both, the one who is in heaven and hell are very conscious of what is happening. Luke 7, or I'm sorry, Acts seven sixty. they've then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians 15 also addresses that, fell asleep. Matthew 27, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, and 2 Peter. So anytime you see that in your Bible, just understand that asleep means death. And so Mark wants you to understand that because there's no miracle, true, real miracle if, if she's just asleep. And Jesus comes in there and says, okay, now it's time to wake up. There's no miracle. It would almost, in one sense, the skeptics could prove in one way that he cannot raise people from the dead. 
but there's one thing here that points to the fact that, it, in fact, there is a confirmation of death. And they began laughing at him, verse 40, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And in Luke eight fifty three, it says they mocked him and said, the girl is dead. Why are you saying that she's just asleep? They laughed at him. They mocked at him. This was absolutely ridiculous to say that she was just still sleeping. Then verse 41, it says, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translates in Aramaic, Little girl, I say to you, get up. This is the language that they spoke in first century Judea. And then in 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. There's one question I want to address, and then we're going we're to close here. Why did the disciples just bring in mom and dad? Or why did Jesus bring in the, the few disciples, just Peter, James, and John? And why did he bring in just mom and dad and leave everyone else out? You got to go back to Mark 4.24. It says this, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. In other words, what Jesus is saying, look, everyone at this funeral who's making an absolute commotion, loud, there's no real true mourning happening. They're visibly mocking Jesus. He doesn't respond to mocking and unbelief. In fact, you remember when he puts them out, like when he, clen- he cleanses the temple in John 2. He puts everyone out who has unbelief. He doesn't respond to that. He only responds to humble faith. But ultimately what he says is that whatever opportunity they had in the moment to believe this up-close miracle of Jesus, they even lost that because they did not believe. I'll tell you, one of the most important messages we probably have in this series was a couple of weeks ago when we said, be careful. Listen to the word of God spoken every Sunday. Do not just sit there and take in this stuff and allow the enemy to snatch it by the time you even get out those double doors. This is serious. You cannot just go through this passage and look at the beauty of Christ Look at how he was available to people, how he was focused on people, sinners just like you and me. How he was calm when everyone else was chaotic. How he was compassionate. Isaiah 42.3 says, A reed, bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. That's the woman. She was at her, had her most vulnerable, and, and Jesus just, just didn't overlook her and said, oh, well, and just would have crushed her to the point of death because that was her only hope. You can't look at Christ this way and say, I'm going to do my own thing. You came to the wrong church because we're going to preach Christ 
and make him so clear that it would be impossible to ever stand before God on judgment day and say, I never knew the truth. Mark 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for him and healed the sick. In Mark 1, 41, he was moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Jesus is incredibly compassionate. As we close our fourth point, he is the compassionate one in our crisis. Isn't he beautiful? You might have had a crazy week. You might not even been one thought about the beauty of Jesus this week. And you know why? There are times where I have those weeks and it is just absolutely crazy. You don't even know what day it is. If you just take a moment and pause just now or even when life's crazy or during the week or when you're on your drive to work or when you're sitting there at the computer or, or you know, whatever you're doing, just to pause and reflect of the beauty of Christ that he is available to you right now. He's available. He's focused on your needs. You never have to be in competition with anybody else at the church. You might be thinking, you know, sometimes those prayer chats, they're going off like crazy, and you just, I, I've had this multiple times. Where you're, you're, you're th- you know it's silent. The prayer chats are silent until you, like, go, and you're like, hey, I have a need. Pray for this. And all of a sudden, everybody else is like, hey, well, I got this. I got, and you're like, well, so much for that because it just gets buried in text. You know, it's like, well, it, do I need to say it again? Do I need to push it up to the front? Even in the midst of all those prayer requests, Somehow, Jesus sees them all. And that's what we need. We need that kind of faith to believe that Christ is available. He's focused. He's compassionate. Even in interruptions, and there's interruptions all day long because you know the world, right? I mean, right now, Asia is sleeping while we're awake. And he's even listening to their prayers in the middle of the night as he's listening to ours in the day. We can have great confidence in in Christ. And I love this. Not only is he all these things, but he is incredibly practical. And I don't have that as one main point in the outline, but I love this. He says, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat, and then the chapter closes. Don't you love that about him? He's not just interested in all these big theological concepts. You know, as we learn more about God and we practice hospitality, sure, we want to answer people's questions about theology and all these big theological terms. I mean, people ask me, what's this, what's that, what's this? And, And that's wonderful. I love that. But let's eat. You know, you need to eat. In fact, I was just telling somebody that the other day. I mean, they asked me, like, what's this big theological concept? I was like, I think we need to eat. We need to eat. He's very practical to your needs. 
He's not the high and lofty theologian, although he understands all those. He is God, by the way. Theology is the study of God. But he's incredibly practical. He's like, this girl probably hasn't eaten in a long time. Parents are like, woo! You know, like running around, like we're going to tell all these people about, hey, she needs to eat something. Before you do the whole, you know, testimony and put up flyers on every, you know, I mean, they're going to obviously see her riding her bike and they're going to see her going to school and they're going to see her. It's going to be very apparent that she's alive. But if you don't feed her, she'll be dead. So you need to feed her. Feed her. I love that. Mark, again, over and over shows that he is the Son of God. He calms the storms, casts out demons. He heals and raises the dead. He saves people from their sin. We saw all this in just two chapters. But in this chapter, we also see how Jesus ministers with patience. As even Paul told Timothy, be patient as you preach the word of God. But he shows us over and over how we can minister to people in this church. We've got to be available. We've got to be focused on the individual. Yes, there's all these people that need your attention, but make sure we're focused on the person in front of us. Listening to them. Not distracted all the time. Listening to the person's needs. And not saying what, what, what every sentence because you missed it because there's something else going inside your mind. He is calm. He's collected. He's not... Yes, there's always going to be something going on in your mind. There's always going to be something happening. There's always going to be five places you should be at once, but you can't. So in the moment, focus on the person in front of you. Be calm. Show them that you really do carry Christ's peace. And when you fail at that, apologize and just say, hey, look, right now I, I got a lot on my mind, but I do want to pay attention to you. And then remember, the motive of all this is compassion. It's just good old-fashioned compassion, right? Just to... We've got to love people. We've got to realize people go through stuff all the time. And you might think it's really small, but they might think it's really big. They probably do. It's why they're coming to you. But all this, as we close, points to one thing. The reason why Jesus says Don't be so quick to go out and tell everybody about your daughter. Why? Why is it that the demoniac in verse 19 gets to, I mean, you remember? Just, you need to go back. He he wanted to go with and be a missionary, and he told the demoniac, you need to stay home and be a missionary here. That was a Gentile town. There was no rub Jewish rub of who's the Messiah. Jesus was 
growing in popularity and really, frankly, the wrong kind in Judea. And so Jesus says, look, I've come for one reason and one reason only in Luke 19.10. I've come to seek and save the lost. And in Mark 8, which we'll get to in nine years, he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. This is like midway through. This is the purpose statement, as we said when we started this series. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. You mean, no, not a miracle worker? Not someone who's just going to travel and bounce around town healing people? No, he's going to suffer He's going to be rejected by religious people and the scribes and the chief priests. And then eventually he's going to be killed. And three days later, he's going to rise again. This is just a taste of what is going to happen to that young little girl. Because she's obviously, that happened 2,000 years ago. She's in heaven now staring at the face of Christ for all of eternity. And we will too one day. And just that... Resurrection, and of course, you see that in Luke or John 11 with Lazarus and the the the, the son uh, in Luke 7. If you remember the, the the funeral procession, and Jesus just taps the casket, taps the boy, and there's no more funeral. There's only three times in the New Testament that we can under, we see that there's a resurrection, but that only points to one resurrection that's going to happen, and that's Christ, and and because of His, we get one too. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This miracle pointed to Christ's death and resurrection so that he can save us from our sins so that one day we will be resurrected. Romans 8, 11 is clear, but if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus has conquered death. If we had more time, I have... Many more scriptures, as you can imagine, one by one, just showing how he conquers death. Jesus overcomes diseases, sickness. Luke 7, 22, go report back to John that what, what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, deaf, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He is God. And John, you baptized him once, and I know you're sitting in a prison right now wondering what in the world has happened. But understand, he is the one, and you know that. And I want to encourage your faith before you die because you'll see him in moments. Do you believe that, that when you die, you'll be resurrected one day? It's by faith, right? It's by grace. Nothing we can do. We come into this world totally depraved, right? We can't do anything. We're dead. What can a dead man do besides stink? 
can't do anything. That the theology of the total depravity of man is by far the most important, or at least, if not, the one to start with. Because if you don't, you don't think you need to be saved. So therefore, the gospel doesn't even make sense to anybody. It's just kind of a cherry on top for your own life of works righteousness. But if we know that we truly come into this world dead, and dead is dead, then we can leave this world understanding that we have life and life abundantly for all of eternity because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He is the first fruits. And because of him, we could have hope. And one day we'll die. One day we too will be on that deathbed. One day, perhaps even in a tragic accident, just a, in a moment, we're alive and then we're dead. We're either going to be with Christ for all of eternity or apart from him in hell for all of eternity. And God does say he desires that nobody perishes. And I think it was clear this morning that who he is and what he calls us to, he's not just interested in healing you and giving you benefits. But what we know about this story is he, what he starts with Jairus, he will complete. What he starts with the woman who was healed, he will complete. He sought her out for one reason, and that was to save her. I love that he walks with us in our suffering. And he's walking with you in your suffering now all the way until he either heals you or delivers you from it through death. And so, Father, we thank you for clearly lining out in Scripture of who you are. And we get the privilege to watch you week after week walk off the pages of Scripture and to show yourself worthy of worship, worthy to follow you and give our entire lives to you. Perhaps some of us in this room, because they heard the word of God, they're, they're uneasy and unsure of their own salvation. I pray, God, that you would open up their, their, the eyes of their hearts and to woo them. The, what that woman experienced, the effectual call, the irresistible grace, the wooing, not just the healing, some impersonal force, but someone who comes in our life physically wants to call us out, look into our eyes, and come, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And he says that to each one of us who he calls to be saved. And so, God, I thank you for that effective call. It works. Salvation works, and it will be preserved to the end. And that is our security. Thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us the church. And you've given us a purpose. And I pray, Lord, that we would never take advantage of that in some sort of negative way, but that we would take it seriously, your call to salvation, and that we would and come after you. In Jesus' name. Why don't we stand to our feet and worship?